is it. The brawling one chai district of Hong Kong. Its streets, its bars, its strange places, and stranger moralities. This is the world of Susie Wong, a provocative best-selling novel, and now filmed where the story takes place, a motion picture of international interest. Starring William Holden, who stepped into the incredible life of the Orient and into the world of the bewitching Wan Chai girl, Susie Wong. You see the girl sitting over there at the bar, the one with the red dress? Yes, Susie Wong. She my best friend, most popular girl in bar. She got sex appeal. Okay, I pose for you. Good. Here. Take clothes off? No, I've never tried nudes. Good time to try. Oh, oh you better take shirt off, Susie. Maybe he not lie. He catch you, he beat you. Poof! He say to me, Susie, I'm crazy mad about you. You do anything you want for goodness sake. She very pretty girl. She virgin? Well, if you'll wait a minute, I'll ask. Never mind. You'll find out. Susie, what are you doing here? You told me to wait. I told you not to wait. Uh, Susie's my model, you see. Does she just wait around until the uh, mood strikes you? I'll get your pajamas. You want tops or bottoms tonight? This is the irrepressible Susie Wong, whose world will soon be yours in this exciting motion picture. A world in which she has to fight just to stay alive. He's the only man in my life I've ever wanted. But if I have to get in the way she did, I'll do it. Robert, why you not let me be your permanent girlfriend? Oh, stop it, Susie. We've been all through that. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but I've had my share of women and all the trouble that goes with it. That's not good reason, Robert. All right, then, I can't accept your way of life. I can't have you giving me your love on the days that you're free. Welcome to a special sub-series of the East Green West Green podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we're going to be taking a look at select Western film portrayals in and about the Fragrant Harbor. Joining me on this journey of cinematic discovery is a Podfather Asian Cinema co-founder of the Podcast on Fire Network, the one, the only, Mr. Kenny B. Hey folks, hey folks, hey Paul, and uh, is, is this our season finale as such? I mean, it's not, been a long season. Not yet. Season. We've got one more to go. One more to go. Sweet, yeah. sweet. 
Well, I, I, I've complimented you before, and I'm going to do it again. The, the, your, the way you've mapped out this series has, remains and has been hugely enjoyable for me because I get these new experiences to absorb and watch. I get to expand my movie palette a little bit. God knows that's needed because you know what kind of crap I watch. And you, you kind of, after a while, become weak for and for how Hong Kong can look in Western eyes, if you just think how it appears when they turn their eye to it, and I'm talking how they shoot the, the geography of it all, you know, especially in these vintage titles, it's always enjoyable to see Hong Kong as it was. So, you know, the location work gets to me, but uh, there's been quality movies along the way as well. So uh, anyone who hasn't uh, thrown Paul some uh, kudos, they should, because he's uh, done a splendid job mapping out this uh, series, and we're not done. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, sir, for that praise. And in terms of giving some praise back, uh, you, as I mentioned, are the co-founder of the podcast on Fire Network. Um, You know, hopefully, if anybody's listening to this show, they know who you are and they know what you've done and are familiar with the work that you've done. But in the event that they haven't, uh, tell some of the fine folks out there what you're working on. Well, we mainly cover uh, through the flagship show, which was the first one created by Stuart Sutherland, and he invited me on as guest. It's called Podcast on Fire. Obviously, it's gone through its share of evolving stages. I mean, for a while, Podcast on Fire housed reviews of the odd Japanese movie here and there, but mainly we talk and review vintage titles out of Hong Kong because that's listener... There's listenership interest in that kind of thing. There's plenty to discuss whether, you know, the big ones uh, from China Fat, Jackie Chan, Samo, and so forth. But, but uh, we're, we are venturing into different territories even within that show by talking of some of the more recent mainland Chinese slash Hong Kong co-productions because it gives me a chance to, again, expand my movie palette a little bit because, uh, I don't know, up until some time in the new millennium, I was pretty on board with following announcements and following directors movie by movie. Every Herman Yao movie, I'm on. I mean, every Johnny Toe movie. I mean, and after a while, I stopped following that, focused on other creative endeavors, uh, perhaps uh, exploring the catalog a little bit rather than following uh, the new efforts. But um, every show on there, Podcast on Fire, or whether it's Japan on Fire or This Week in Sleaze, or even the Golden Ninja podcast, there, there's always the mission statement, which I've, you know, I'm Swedish, so I, I don't praise myself, and I can't, you know, because uh, we're that kind of people. But if I were to pat myself on the back a little bit, I, I think we bring even within, so to say, uh, shows with uh, B content, B movie action content. Uh, our mission statement has always been to bring context and fun to the table, and. I think we can take pride in that we've uh, shared some info with listeners and educated some listeners. That info is like an extension of research that other people have done, of course, so we're not taking credit for that. But um, I'm most proud, though, that we are able to uh, to bring that context and fun without it being too stuffy. I mean, I always bring up the example you you, you don't joke about in uh, during a show, though, that covers uh, war crime atrocities that then leads to a, a review of a Hong Kong exploitation movie that depicts such war crime atrocities. So we're not uh, cold, cold bastards like that. But um, in, in general, that's what we do. 
and if I'm being honest, Paul, that's what I, I want to hear as a listener. So I've been sort of listening to myself for all these years. Like, what would I like to hear? I, I don't like necessarily people sitting there riffing on movies and laughing at movies and laughing with movies and trying to be uh, stand-up comedians. You know, you leave that to stand-up comedians. And so what you hear sort of, Paul and other listeners, is what I like to hear. But it's nice to be surprised, though, where the discussion takes you, where what silly excursions might happen within a discussion. But uh, there's always a thread. Uh, if it doesn't feel like it, it's it's supposed to be a thread in there. But uh, I enjoy it. And uh, who knows uh, how I can expand um, all of this. I mean, what, we, what I'm looking forward to is uh, we're, we're going to conclude a particular series within Japan on Fire on filmmaker Hideo Gosha, director of Free Outlaw Samurai, Violent Streets. And when that's done, I need to sit down to think of what kind of anime coverage can I do um, in terms of maybe talking to more adult titles, uh, not necessarily the, the sexual titles, but uh, the more uh, violent titles and uh, some of the iconic OVAs that came. I mean, we're, we're getting a live action one based on either a movie or an OVA some, somewhat soon, the Battle Angel Alita, is it? It's coming out live, yep. uh, and so maybe that's something because I to 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 look into because I haven't seen that yet, but I like the look of it. It's the kind of anime production era that I like to follow in the eighties and nineties, and maybe that's something to look uh, into. But not knowing how to structure it, how to map it out, that's the fun. Like I get to sit down. Okay, how do I do it? That's the challenge, and. That's um, something to look forward to, to, meaning that all the shows we do over there, they, uh, I, I do look forward to, to them all. It's not, uh, we, we don't sleepwalk through them, even the, the ones where we know info beforehand. So uh, that's a long way of saying that I enjoy it. Hope you enjoy it if you take a chance on us. And we're, we're available on podcastnofire.com and Apple Podcasts and uh, all the different uh, podcatchers out there and so forth. So uh, that's it. So back to this series. Uh, what is this series about? In programming for this series, have looked at a range of films and broken them down into a few subcategories. This is the seventh episode of our series, the next to last for this season. And we continue into our final subgenre that we are calling Love Hong Kong Style. So following up with our last film, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, we now move on to a film that I think for some people in the West becomes perhaps the penultimate quote-unquote Hong Kong film. That is a film that came to represent Hong Kong in the minds of many people in the West, but perhaps not necessarily in a good way. So we're going to get into some of the controversy surrounding the film. Um, the film itself is actually based on a couple things. First and foremost is the novel by author Richard Mason, which was released in 1957. Um, this would go on to be adapted into a Broadway play that ran from 1958 through to 1960, and finally the film being released in 1960 as well. So if you're not familiar with Richard Mason, um, he was an author. I think this is probably perhaps the work he's most famous for. And at a certain point in his life in the post-World War II era, um, he was in the Asia region, and he stayed at a hotel in Hong Kong for a period of time which, if um, I have the name correct, it's the Luk Kwok Hotel um, over on Gloucester Road in Wan Chai. And so he based part of the story on, you know, the experience that he had there. As I understand it, the building is still there, 
It's a kind of modern style hotel, not a brothel, but it's kind of a smaller, you know, because of the spatial considerations. You know, it's a small place that you can uh, stay at if you're on a Hong Kong side, though it's not mm-hmm. going to be cheap, as I understand it. Can I just ask you something, by the mm-hmm. way? I haven't lived in Hong Kong. Were you ever interested in like doing location spotting or being in Hong Kong? You stumble upon locations for movies anyway, in a yeah, natural yeah. manner. Yeah, both. I, I used to, I mean, there was a great site that the name escapes me that's, I guess it's still running and it does, it's all about location spotting um, in Hong Kong. And I was always very envious of the the detail and the time that that particular person had to go around and find places and take photos and <laughs> talk right about them and put them up on the web um, because it was far more free time than I ever had. But uh, I did make it a point to visit, you know, some locations um, when I could find them, when I was going to be in an area and, you know, just just for my own sort of nostalgia stake, not really for doing any photography or write-ups or anything like that. Um, and it's pretty easy to do because within Hong Kong, you can pretty much get to anything except the Outer Islands um, within the span of an hour, an hour and a half, right? Because Hong Kong's really not that big of a place. So if you've set your mind to something and you know where something is, it can be pretty easy to get to. The problem is, is that for the location spotting that I think a lot of listeners might like to do, especially for films of, say, the 80s and 90s, Hong Kong's already changed so much that a lot of you know famous shops, famous locations, famous places have closed down and have been redeveloped or demolished and turned into some kind of new shopping center or new high-rise. Um, and so while the space that existed... Um, is still there technically the presence that whatever, whatever whatever it was the shop whatever it was is likely gone you you mean i can't uh, go on my bio zombie location scouting and actually see the jordan chan sam lee vcd shop you're telling me that's gone <laughs> that's probably not there yeah gosh darn it i think that's a safe bet Damn it. um and even you know that there, there have been articles of late talking about some of the more famously known locations, things from like Wong Kar Wai movies and things that have gotten renowned on the, because of you know his films being on the art house circuit that have closed down and, and you know people decry those losses. It's unfortunate that um, that is still the case. So, well, well, in the world of Susie Wong, we get um, many locations immortalized, which is why I said that at the beginning that it's so wonderful that both Hong Kong filmmakers obviously do this by shooting so many movies back in the day, but uh, to see Westerners come in and capture in, you know, a much more sort of splendid fashion in full widescreen, Technicolor, Hong Kong of old is a wonderful thing to have. And that includes the world of Susie Wong, I think. Yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that. So, yes, the novel written by uh, Richard Mason, who unfortunately passed away in uh, uh, almost a little bit of irony in 1997, a few months after the handover to Hong Kong. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, some of the things we're going to talk about with the film version is the way that it represents Hong Kong, the way that it represents sort of the Chinese population in Hong Kong versus the British colonial population and some of the attitudes therein. And I think some of these ideas were present in the book as well. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that Unfortunately, his passing coincided just a few months over, you know, beyond the the sort of colonial passing over of Hong Kong back to China. 
the as I said, the film version also spawned into a Broadway play, and it starred a young actor then known as William Shatner, of other people, as the title uh, male lead, um, Robert Lomax. And it starred Frances Nguyen as Susie Wong. So if you're not familiar with her, um, I think many people will be familiar, of course, with Captain Kirk, William Shatner. Um, but uh, Frances, who originally had the role of Susie Wong, um, was a fairly new actress on the scene. I think she'd been in um, the movie South Pacific prior to this, and that kind of got her some recognition. And she would go on to do other work as well. Um, but her tenure on the Susie Wong Broadway show was a bit rough at times, um, but it was good enough that it led to her getting cast for the film version. So she was originally cast as Susie in the film version, but uh, there were some problems with the film. And as I understand it, her then, she was having a relationship with a man at the time who then she thought was cheating on her with somebody else. And so when they had finished all the principal shooting in Hong Kong and they had returned to London to do all the studio shooting, the rumored is that she began to overeat because of her unhappiness with um, the, this affair that was going on. And she put on too much weight and could not fit into the Chinese Chiang Sams. And this was a big problem for the production. And uh, she was, I guess, very reluctant to diet or, you know, uh, lose the weight, as it were. And eventually this led to the recasting of the role with Nancy Kwan. So, who, so, so they actually shot the Hong Kong portions with yeah. uh, with uh, Francis and with had Francis. to go back. And wow. they, then, they then had to go back and reshoot um, all the Hong Kong stuff over again. So, wow. um, you know, and when you look at the Hong Kong stuff and you think about the amount, uh, I mean, there's quite a bit of, you know, footage there and second unit footage, uh, you know, people on the street. You know, that probably was not an inexpensive thing to, to get done, you know. Um, we hear about reshoots taking place all the time these days, but, um, you know, back then they didn't have the logistical systems that they do today in place. So you would think that it would be probably even more problematic um, going forward. So interestingly, um, William Shatner was not offered the role of Robert Lomax for the film version. Uh, and that went to somebody we've already seen uh, before in our previous film. And that is it with William Holden. So we talked a little bit about Mr. Holden uh, in, you know, last episode when we discussed um, him working on, on that film. And I couldn't really find anything of note with, um, you know, him in this film. We'll talk a little bit about his chemistry with, uh, with uh, Nancy Kwan as we go forward. Nancy is a very sort of interesting personality. She was a new actress on the scene. I think she was an understudy for the Broadway show. Yeah, and I believe so. That's why initially um, they had done a casting call for her for the film version, but they thought she was too young and inexperienced for the role. That's why she didn't get it, and that's why they went with Francis. Eventually, they went back to her, and uh, the the rest, you know, kind of goes down in history, as it were. Um, but Francis would later appear with William Shatner in a in a future episode in 1968 of Star Trek called. Ellen of Troyes, I think for many Star Trek fans, you will remember this episode. It's one of the more famous and well-known episodes, even though it's just basically a play on Helen of Troy. Um, she would also appear in Wayne Wang's The Joy Luck Club, who is also the director, which we talked about a few episodes back, for uh, Chinese Box. And even though she didn't get a chance to um, 
act opposite of William Holden and Susie, she did get the opportunity to do so a couple years later in a film called Satan Never Sleeps. So um, metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the description, I haven't seen that film, but the description sounds pretty metal too. Um, and actually, there's another figure, uh, I believe actor Burt Kwok, under a different pen name or act, uh, acting name, um, has a pretty big role in that film. And he was in the um, Noble House miniseries uh, mm-hmm. that we talked about as well. So a lot of, you know, sort of interesting connections back and forth to some of the things. Hey, hey even, even Nancy Kwan had a, a role in Noble yep. House. He yep. was, was uh, Pierce Brosnan's secretary. Right? That's right, yeah. Um, so lots of little back and forths. Um, and with regard to, I mean, we'll talk about the film and some of the reactions um, a little bit, but with regard to sort of the cultural consciousness that developed around this film, there have been a couple things that kind of followed in its wake. Um, in 2006, the Hong Kong Ballet premiered a dance adaptation um, called Suzy Wong, and I had the very good fortune to attend that. It was a it was oh, a pretty right fantastic on. show, um, you know, for an adaptation that's you know a ballet adaptation of something of this nature. And were, were you therefore familiar with the movie already, so you could sort of have it play in your head in terms of yeah. what they replicated, what other, what new ventures they went into, and so forth. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting because as a ballet, it's pretty nonverbal throughout you know most of the show, but they still are able to do some. They were able to do some pretty amazing storytelling with cool. regard to the dance and the sets and everything that they brought to the table or to the stage, I should say. Um, so that was pretty amazing to see. Unfortunately, I don't think there's any video versions of that because um, sometimes with Hong Kong art performances, they will, um, you know, do a video version and capture it and sell it. But I never came across anything in the years that followed because that would definitely be something I would have liked to. Have but it's your personal memory, so uh, yep. that's not a bad thing to to have. Yep, that's true. Um, then in um, 2008, there's uh, a book by Sebastian Gerard which is kind of considered an unauthorized sequel called For Goodness Sake, The Afterlife of Susie Wong. And the book takes place um, some four decades or so after the events in Mason's book. And I believe it's about a guy who's kind of in Hong Kong doing research and he's kind of investigating um, the the story of Susie and, and Robert Lomax to try and see, you know, if they were real people or not. And then um, another book called Susie, uh, written in 2010 by Leon Pang, is an attempt to sort of modernize the take. And it also looks at uh, some of the changes in Hong Kong and some of the themes that emerged um, out of that as well. For academics out there, you might be familiar if you're interested in sort of Asian film, Asian literature. The book called Before and After Susie, Hong Kong and Western Film and Literature from Chinese University Press, not readily available I've checked uh, Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Um, I have a copy of this somewhere in storage that I've read through in the past, but I think you can still get it if you order it directly from Chinese University Press. They seem to have stuff in stock if you are interested in sort of the academic side of things. There's been a lot written about Susie Wong academically over the years, and we'll touch on uh, some of that going forward. I think the last bit of literature that I'll recommend, though, is the comic series uh, by Larry Fine. And this is kind of indirectly related. It is called The World of Lily Wong. It is a comic strip that he used to write for the South China Morning Post um, and then later for The Standard. And he took his strips, 
you know, like many comic artists will do, whether you read Garfield or Marmaduke or Foxtrot or any of those things, um, after a number of years, they'll compile those into books. And so he has quite a few books under the world of Lily Wong that you, I don't think you can find new anymore, but I think if you search secondary markets on Amazon and eBay, uh, you can find them. And basically it's kind of a modern iteration um, with the Lily Wong character being sort of a modern Hong Kong girl and she meets a Westerner um, and they have kind of a romance and it's a lot of sort of cross-cultural um, misunderstandings, but it's also a pretty stark commentary on the politics of the time, especially leading up to the handover and commentary on China. And he got in trouble for some of it, you know, over the years um, as artists and journalists tend to do when you're dipping into the world of, of politics and sensitive areas like China and Hong Kong. Uh, but it's an it's an excellent strip, and if you've never encountered it before, you're interested in Hong Kong, China, and cartoons, it's one to check out. But of course, perhaps the most relevant thing for listeners out there is another film itself, um, especially for Hong Kong cinema fans, and that is the film called My Name Ain't Susie from 1985. And I think we're going to have some things to say about Anthony that Anthony Perry fans reunite or unite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll have some things to say about that film uh, towards the end as well. So let's briefly just talk a little bit about the story. I would think that most people, if you're listening to this, you've seen the film. If you haven't, we may spoil some things. So perhaps watch it first and, and come back and listen to the rest of our discussion. Uh, but taking place somewhere in the 1950s, American architect Robert Lomax takes a year off to pursue his dream of being an artist. With limited funds, he finds himself at the Nam Kok Hotel, a location that serves as a love motel for the bar girls of Wan Chai. There he meets Susie Wong, a working girl with a heart of gold. He decides to hire her as his model, and his affection for her grows. But can their growing relationship survive the shadows of her past and the colonial attitudes of the era? So uh, this is coming from director Richard Quinn, or Quinn, I'm not sure. A pretty prominent director of the era, but the only thing I remember seeing of his filmography is, I want to say, The Prisoner of Zenda. Um, and aside from this, and perhaps I've seen this quite a few more times than I've seen The Prisoner of Zenda, so I'm not too familiar with his work, but I do know that um, he did replace the original director they had on board. Again, part of that kerfuffle they had with sort of Francis Nguyen and a lot of stuff going on um, with replacing her, and Richard Quayne or Quinn was brought in um, to replace the original director as well. Cast, as we mentioned, William Holden, uh, Nancy Kwan. Nancy Kwan, if you're not familiar, she is a Hong Kong origin, Hong Kong-based father, and a, I think her mother was Scottish and British. And so she's a Eurasian um, by design, but born in Hong Kong. And then um, another person we're going to mention a little bit later is Jackie Chan, but not the Jackie Chan that you're thinking about. I was about to say, where? Those. Where? <laughs> Did I miss some cameo spotting? I should be aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a different Jackie Chan. And we'll talk more about her going forward as well. So, uh, you know, first watch for you, I think, right, Ken? Uh, let me throw it over to your court and give us some of your thoughts. Yes, sir. First watch. And uh, since you know, Paul, I'm, I'm just incredibly stupid and anything obviously controversial in a movie that will be picked up by any other viewer just flies over my head because... That's who I am. So I try to read notes beforehand what it is that 
the world of Susie Wong did wrong, what is cringeworthy about it. And I found a review with lots and lots of words that would gain you elite status in words with friends. So that wasn't helpful. Uh, so I just decided to do, you know, the radical thing of just watching and making an honest determination of what's good, what's bad, what's dated, <laughs> what's uh, present uh, uh, in terms of why there was a response in the form of my name in Susie. It's like a response movie. So what, what was here in Susie Wong that required that? Um, um, and I guess, uh, you know, it's a classical romance, uh, you know, in this case between a Westerner and a prostitute who doesn't seem to have the worst job in the world as such. Her life doesn't seem to have dealt her that, that much of a bad hand. Looks good. This life, she she's impeccable. She can dance, she can have fun while also falling in love. And I'm guessing that glamorous side of the profession, the, the, you know, it's the profession is stripped down to an appealing one, is, uh, I'm guessing, what's uh, not sitting well with all viewers and has sat well with viewers over the years but other than that it's funnily enough a fairly appealing romance because it's a perfectly fine romantic film uh, anchored by engaged actors uh, there's a sense of fun and playful interaction between william holden and nancy kwan and uh, she she has some rough acting in the emotional scenes but uh, overall i think she's quite fetching and her energy is contagious to watch so i, I could spot some things but was also finding myself uh, enjoying these two interacting. I mean, uh, in Love is a Many Splendid Thing, there were signs of William Holden not getting on with his leading lady, and there was a reason for that, because they didn't. You know, what was she? She ate like, ate like some crap before kissing scenes, and uh, his leading lady in that one. So, I mean, hopefully that didn't happen, but th this time it doesn't show up, because I, I do like them on screen. But, uh, uh, yeah, so... um. That was my take in basically in terms of what, what I think is uh, not uh, not sitting well with viewers, the sort of uh, bright and shiny and uh, clean nature of prostitution as depicted uh, here. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for now and uh, let you educate me on some on some more stuff. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think the chemistry here works much better than it did in the previous film, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Um, I'm, I'm just, you know, as a big fan of William Shatner, I'm, I, I like to ponder the what if scenario. What if he'd actually been in this film, um, instead of William Holden? But of course, if that had but happened, he, 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 he wasn't a film actor by this point though, Shatner, right? He, so that wouldn't done, have happened. He'd done a couple, I think some TV roles. I don't know if he'd done the Twilight, the famous Twilight Zone episode or not yet. Um, but he'd done some stuff. He was he was he was a little bit of a name, but he wasn't certainly the right. uh, iconic uh, name he's known for that of Captain Kirk yet. And you know, had he been put into this role, then of course we probably not would not have had him as Captain S Kirk because of Susie. I am in love with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the jokes just write themselves, right? Exactly. Well. Um, I, I love William Shatner, by the way, so that's not a slight. Uh, yeah, I, I do too. And, um, you know, as kind of a side note, um, in doing some of the research, I read an interview with him where he talks, you know, about some of his experience. But two years back in 2016, he started this kind of short reality TV series called Better Late Than Never, um, where he and um, Henry Winkler of, you know, Fonzie from Happy Days, uh, I think Terry Bradshaw, the football player, and um, the the boxer, uh, I forget his name, George Foreman, George Foreman, sorry, 
got to remember okay. the George Foreman grill. Um, yeah. <clears throat> they get together and they go on a big sort of world tour together and they visit places they've never been before. And so the first season is them in Asia and they start off, I think, in Japan and then they go to um, South Korea and I think they go to Thailand. And one of their stops is one of the episodes is in Hong Kong. It's a pretty funny series, even though it's it's still, you know, as reality TV tends to be, it's heavily scripted out. But um, it's funny seeing these old guys out of their element and kind of encountering new things and them palling around together. And I really like the Hong Kong episode, even though they didn't spend the whole episode there. I think it was only half an episode. But uh, it was interesting because William Shatner said it had, it was really literally his first time ever being in Hong Kong um, after all these years. And it was, you know, he was kind of blown away by the experience. So if you're somebody, again, who's a fan of Asia and you kind of like the travel show side of things and you don't mind a bunch of old guys acting silly and a little bit of scripted kind of reality television style stuff, uh, check that out. I think you can find find it online. I think the second season they go to uh, different parts of Europe, and I have not watched that season. Um, but I did watch the first season and really enjoy it. So sorry for that little bit of uh, side venture. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think, but I think William Holden does a credible job, and I do like his chemistry with Nancy Kwan, even though I, for me, I think Nancy Kwan... Um, kind of acts circles around him in terms of the performance that she gives versus the performance that he gives. He's not too far removed from the performance that he gives in uh, Love is a Many Splendid Thing, but I do agree that I think the chemistry between them feels more fun and more natural here. Um, and I do think that with this film we get, for the period, some of the best second unit shots of pretty much anything we've seen in the series thus far, with maybe the exception of uh, Chinese Box. And uh, especially I was kind of blown away. There's some shots on the roof of what is supposed to be the Namcock um, Hotel where he's painting Susie, and you can just see kind of these wide vistas of Hong Kong that I are... I almost thought that was a... Um a rear projection thing in but but that, then shortly after that you're convinced that that would be uh, out of this world technically well accomplished if it yeah. was fake it, and it, it isn't there were times when i thought that too there's a, in the opening shot for example when they ride the star ferry there's a, a couple shots of the two of them um standing at the window and it's like looking through and i think that's some rear projection that's being done it's very well done, um, but it's, because yeah, it, bl- it's, it blends. It's not like poor green screen where it doesn't blend. Uh, this blends. Yeah, um, and, and I, I think part of this too is maybe because of the fact that the film doesn't look like it's had a decent restoration job done to it in terms of making it HD. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the versions that are currently out there. Um, but yeah, it hits all the sort of relevant spots, the Star Ferry ride. There is yet again another trip to Aberdeen and the floating restaurants to pick a fish and, and to have a meal. And uh, I think the sound on this one was perhaps a little better than in, in previous ones. Yeah, and yeah, we you're, have... you're used to uh, the loudness of that place uh, in terms of uh, natural production audio yeah. in one movie. They even left that production audio in. Uh, I remember making that note, thank God for subtitles, because you can't hear those people. Yeah, um, we get lots of shots of boat people uh, and some makeshift housing. 
In addition to this, we get some plot threads that would relate out to the British snobbery, um, not to be offensive, but uh, of the era um, in terms of sort of attitudes, the separation of sort of the us and them, and, you know, what happens when you kind of cross that boundary. So that's present. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit for a moment about a supporting character, and that supporting character, as I mentioned, is Jackie Chan, but not the Jackie Chan that we know. This is Jackie with a Q-U-I, Chan, who plays the supporting character of Gwenny Lee, um, who is perhaps one of the most charming characters of of the series, perhaps even more so than the leads. Um, what was your reaction to uh, Gwenny Lee? I think that probably remains the strongest character because it um, seems to... Um, go against a little bit what's being depicted here uh, she she isn't one of the prostitutes seemingly and she she has deemed that she has no sex appeal uh, that's her quote in the movie and she mostly hangs around it seems like she knits and uh, she, she obviously she, she is a pretty woman but uh, that's her comfortable role so it seems like a little bit more of a real character and not too stereotypical either she wasn't just wise for the sake of it to get some plot moving it just felt a little uh, a bit um like, like i couldn't um, determine from the get-go where that character was going the interactions with her and william holden felt uh, fresh and unpredictable to a degree and i think natural too this movie has a lot of dialogue so it uh, it needs to feel it can't be stilted if uh, you're gonna enjoy it and i think uh, she brings um you know unique touch maybe is a too grand of a word but uh, i i enjoyed her role as some some i didn't i didn't expect that kind of role in the movie and that felt felt a little bit fresh versus the stuff that uh, is perhaps more cringeworthy in certain viewers eyes as i talked of in my in my brief opinion but uh, yeah very much uh, enjoyed that and then apparently a grand career as well. I didn't know of her, and you, you sent me some link, and she uh, she stayed busy and stays busy. Interestingly, I mean, apparently, the persona, the person of of Jackie Chan herself, was romantically linked to an individual known as Anthony Armstrong Jones, who I guess then later married into the royal family, and because of that, you know, brief relationship she had with him then she is now depicted in the Netflix series The Crown and also another series, a BB series on Princess Margaret. So, um, you know, I guess if you are associated with, you know, famous people from a certain era and <laughs> you get to a point to where they want to make material about that era, you may end up <laughs> in that, you know, although indirectly, right? So... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and she has stayed busy. She still works today. She does a lot of stage work. And so it's great to see that, you know, even in for characters who, you know, are kind of renowned for a small supporting role that they can go on and continue to have uh, very illustrious careers afterwards. I guess we should talk a little bit, though, about some of the controversy with the Susie Wong film, um, you know, especially because this is a Hollywood film and it's, you know, sort of reimagining. So, there, the, again, uh, Richard Mason, the, the author, um, was British. The original character of Robert Lomax was British. But um, 
in I guess in in the stage play and also in the movie version they reimagine him as an American, right? Because Young, be, younger too in the book, I believe. Yeah, he's got to be sort of American centric. So, um, yeah, in the movie, I I think there's a line where <clears throat> the Robert Robert Lomax character says, you know, he's pushing forty, um, whereas Susie's just out of her twenties or something, or just barely over twenty. So, you know, there there are the there's the ageism. Thing that's present there but it's not it's not over to some of the other issues um, but the Hong Kong girl associations with Susie and some of the misconceptions of things like Asian domestication were problematic um, also some of the ideas I think in terms of the representation so there's a scene where Susie has dressed up in a Western style dress and Robert Lomax basically just rips the dress off her saying she looks like a European streetwalker and we saw this done in Taipan with similar claims, right? Uh, that's right. Um, where the Joan Chen character dresses up in a sort of European dress of the era. Brian Brown, his reaction is unfavorable. And, you know, she gets upset because of the loss of face and basically tears it off herself since she wants to actually harm herself. And, you know, he's saying, no, it doesn't suit you. Western clothes don't suit you. And the same kind of an idea here, you know. But conversely... It's fine for her to dress up in sort of the traditional Chang Sam or which is, you know, the the dress with the sort of slit on the side. Or he at one point he gets her an empress dress, you know, and it's perfectly fine for her uh, to dress up in that, even though that's a way out of period <laughs> mm. dress, um, because it's it's a type of, you know, again, the exotic other through fashion. Um, and, and that theme is presented as as okay and and acceptable um and then other themes come across too that we've seen before the idea of beating to save face that was one they harped on in taipan you know where you have to beat them in order to save face and here you know it's overtly talked about where she brags that robert has beat her even though he hasn't yeah that that was probably the thing i reacted towards the most not that i know exactly the feeling of losing face but i've never heard it expressed so extremely that uh, yeah and and she concocts that story because he he, he well he writ the dress off her but he doesn't beat her but she has to uh, relay that story to her fellow prostitutes that's always mildly he's, he's crazy about me he's hugely jealous and he beats me so yeah <laughs> great for me and and that was like okay that's you know it, it couldn't have been that fun to hear in 1960 let alone in 2018 that uh, she favors domestic abuse sort of i think the final point that we'll just touch on and again there's lots and lots of academia academic writing out there that is gonna you know just touch on lots of other small details that we don't need to get into here for the point of this podcast, but the major ones we're touching on and the idea of the sort of the Western male savior or the idea of male gaze here, the way it, you know, focuses on the sort of sexuality of Susie versus, you know, the sexuality of the male protagonist as being different. The idea of male gaze, the idea of white guilt or white saviorism, because it takes, you know, a westerner to kind of come in and save Susie from all her problems that have been forced upon her by her uncle and society and everything in general and you know so that a lot of that is at play here too and these are again points that we will think about and touch on when we think about 
the idea of this kind of film genre as it's presented in Hong Kong films, right? And mm -hmm. it's been covered a lot in Hong Kong films, but we're going to talk about My Name Ain't Susie as the one that's considered a kind of direct response um, to this film. And it's a female director, so then it calls into question ideas about male gaze and, and other things that are at play here in this film, too. Mm. Um, the, 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 the thing I thought um, you, you, you mentioned that uh, that uh, interplay between them that he keeps rejecting her because he has a history with women that he doesn't touch upon as such because it's it's a bad history and he doesn't want to fall down that hole again to have the contrast of her trying to uh, lure him into her sexuality uh, just uh, and uh, you know be sassy and be flirtatious versus him just flat out rejecting her I thought it was a little bit extreme uh, that they they almost went with that she's sexually supercharged yeah. and he's going to reject her and reject her and reject her until finally romance. Yeah. And especially when you compare that with his interplay with the K. O'Neill character, the, the daughter of the British banker who mm. is arguably equally as charged to go after and, and quote unquote win him. But the way she goes about it is much more subdued and not as overtly sexual. So, yeah. you know, it, it again becomes this play on Western morality versus Asian exoticism and, you know, th these ideas, which unfortunately get assigned to Asianness, right, as a, as a result of this film, you know, coming and being successful. And a lot of people saying, oh, so this is how it is in Asia. You know, the fact that, uh, young, you know, young Asian Hong Kong girls are domesticated, they want you to beat them, and they're sexually supercharged, which is, you know, is, it's a complete oversimplification and stereotypification of the idea, and again, is something that many people have touched on and, and written about. And and yet, Paul, it remains, You, I don't know how you work, but I, I could disconnect some of that because I enjoyed their verbal back and forth in the variety in the various scenes i mean holder's character has his shield up for the reasons i stated then the movie doesn't go all out exposition on us in terms of well let me tell you about my past relationships uh, and uh, i remember it just like it was yesterday <laughs> like they don't do that but yet those um the, those verbal singers that they throw back uh, back and forth towards each other and uh, the the clear chemistry that's there it's pretty solid but certainly her likability as a performer and her her energy which feels very um playful i i can just imagine that that in itself if we disconnect the controversial elements that in itself would be so likable in audiences eyes so because she she's not just uh, there to be super sexy all the time but, but she has this attitude about her that's that's infectious and uh, it, you know them interacting first as mortal enemies on the boat and then starting to laugh in each other's company that uh, brings a curiosity to the movie uh, to see the verbal back and forth and such chemistry went down right in any movie back then and down, and now is is enjoyable to watch and I, I think I enjoyed watching it because the director doesn't go down the obvious romantic routes immediately because he does reject her for the longest of time until it goes down some of the more predictable paths that you um, that you described. So I think the movie 
thanks to her, gets a momentum about it. There's a pace to this, some fairly long movie. It's a two-hour movie. And uh, it can have an infectious infectious energy. So it doesn't change the world and does some things quite poorly, as you've described. But uh, to have that, that interaction lingers with me. And I don't know about, about you, if you, if you. Could you extract that you know, from the the elements that it doesn't do well and just focus on the interaction itself and find yourself enjoying the movie uh, for stretches. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still enjoy <laughs> the movie and I feel guilty about enjoying it. Afterwards. <laughs> you know, it's like you shouldn't enjoy this because, you know, this is that has so many bad aspects. But one of the things, a- as I mentioned, I think um, the comic strip, The World of Lily Wong, um, which, again, is is, you know, sort of a modern take. But the Lily Wong character is an office girl. Right. Mm-hmm. She's just working a normal sort of modern day contemporary office, office job. And she meets this foreign guy who's moved to Hong Kong to work and, and he pursues her and she rejects him and rejects him. And it's kind of that same idea. A lot of the humor is based in the cultural misunderstanding and the banter back and forth. And this, you know, it's like if you took Susie Wong and removed the sexual aspects and you just made it about, you know, a boy meets girl story, but with some cultural complications in the middle. Um, and mm. I think that's when this film is really, you know, working very well for me is when, as you say, it's got that sort of, you know, back and forth going for it. And it's less inv- involved in sort of the the exotic eye of, you know, what the camera is focusing on. Mm-hmm. And, and even like it's light, but it doesn't go down comedic routes as such. I mean, the only thing that really goes clownish but i did love where is when william holden is gonna come to the defense of susie of the one of the sailors one of the customers has, has uh, slapped her so he runs down the stairs but he's in his uh, pajama bottoms and he's gonna fight the guy that way and all i think the scene plays out where people realize that uh, this looks silly and i think we can solve it some other way you know it's a fun reversal of uh, being macho uh, which showed william holden uh, you know, having a not being precious about his image. You know, yeah. he can run around in his uh, pajama bottoms and still be still be an engaging actor. You know, yeah. And I think also with Susie in in um, in sort of the earlier scene when she's dealing with that guy, she shows a ferocity and and tenacity in that scene because she's doing something with intent, right? And even though it's a scene about abuse and things, you know, she's getting she's given as good as she gets, and I think it's. You know, it's a, it's a testament to, you know, characters, because a lot of times in, in that era, a woman was something to be rescued and, and to be saved and to be abused, right? And I think that she shows a slightly different side of that. And, you know, again, mm-hmm. it's part of the, she talks about it later, you know, too, that it's, you know, it's, it's just part of the job nature um, that she's involved with. And again, that's something that we see a lot of when we get into talking about other films, mm-hmm. Um, in this genre. The, the language, by the way, I, I want to point out that the, the one thing that truly bothered me is that they they have plenty of actors and actresses, including Nancy Kwan, that speak impeccable English, but they, they dumb it down. to a, They hammer home that fact that she has broken English to a degree. But mm. when, the, when the accent is so, is so impeccable and so posh, to have that interspersed with, you American... You're not Chinese. I'm American. That felt uh, shallow and cheap mm. to me. 
I, I wish they'd just gone with the fact that she speaks impeccable English and just let us enjoy it uh, because of that. You know what I mean? So uh, m- maybe not what scholars have written about extensively, but I, I noticed that it, they, they, those were two contrasting choices because uh, she, her English is great. And even the the, the Gemma, uh, or Jemmy character, she's, uh, they... Or, or rather, I think within her, they kept it. It felt more logical. It was she didn't go uh, from posh English to broken, broken English as such. But with Nancy Kwan, I think they should have just settled on the fact that she she knows English very well, and mm-hmm. that's okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And they do make a point of this too. There is a couple, a couple scenes where the Robert Lomax character is interacting with um, other. Hong Kongers, a police officer at one point, and then another police officer where he's trying to get directions, and he's using very, very broken, limited Cantonese, and they just reply back to him, you know, in near-perfect English. You know, no, you could just, you don't want to go down here, sir, because, uh, you know, that's for, that's for really poor people. You'd be more comfortable somewhere else. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I do think that they do try and, and, you know, make a credible attempt to show that, you know, yeah, it's, it's Hong Kong is a you know a very different place and there's lots of different people and there are people who are educated and you know are are able to display that in the film so and, um, and even the girls speak Cantonese amongst themselves at several points in yeah. the movie which was a nice touch rather than uh, keeping it all English I wouldn't be, have been bothered if it was all English because that's an expected movie choice back then and even now but I, I enjoyed that there, there was a back and forth and hopefully they were all speaking uh, good Cantonese with each other. They didn't subtitle the dialogue at all because uh, there wasn't a structural need uh, to do so. Yeah. We talk about the idea of uh, art reflecting life. And in truth, Wan Chai is still a bar girl district. Um, it still services mm-hmm. sailors today. And, you know, bad stuff does uh, happen there, unfortunately. And I think perhaps one of the problems with uh, the Susie Wong character itself was that for people on the outside they associated her as a quote-unquote Hong Kong girl and I believe even the Susie Wong character is not from Hong Kong herself I think she was like considered an immigrant from Shanghai Mm. Um, and so you know it is the idea that the girls who are working as the Wan Chai Bar girls are not considered true representations of a quote-unquote Hong Kong girl and this was a problem I think that, you know, especially some Hong Kong people had with the film is that, you know, for Westerners, you know, Susie Wong was a Hong Kong girl. And that was perhaps a not entirely accurate thing to as a representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, this film portrays it as kind of light and, and fluffy. And, you know, there's the occasional bar fight and the occasional girl fight. But for the most part, it is that idea of the sort of happy-go-lucky prostitute, you know, and and we've seen this character before. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, Sandra M's character in Golden Chicken, right? Um, she's kind of Susie Wong-esque in some ways because she has a hap- sort of happy-go-lucky attitude towards the profession. But, you know, bad things happen. Um, there was, for example, just a couple years back in uh, November, um, very famous, now famous case of Rook Judding, um, who you know, apparently took two girls and murdered them, unfortunately. 
Um, and these girls were from various parts of Southeast Asia. I want to say Indonesia or somewhere near, you know, nearby that, that area. Um, and you know, really just a terrible, you know, terrible thing to, to happen. And something that thankfully is, I would not say not overly commonplace. Um, you know, you don't hear news of that kind of tragic nature all too often, but still, you know, it is something that surrounds the industry, an industry that is laced with drugs and, you know, other vices. Um, I remember reading a story, too, of the reverse of people who've gone to these Wan Chai bars and they've woken up in their hotel with all their stuff gone, you know, mm. because they've been rolled. So, there, you know, it's it's the underworld and there's bad stuff that happens um, on both sides. And I don't mean to equate the two things. I'm just relating two stories that are kind of sort of there in my memory um, as sort of the reality versus the the images that were given in, in a film like this or that we would get in other films, um, as we'll talk about. Um, and I mean, I guess, you know, your take on it, did you find Susie Wong to be a bit too optimistic, if that's the right word, in terms of, you know, the world that it's portraying? I, I think... It's it couldn't con. I mean, I mean, I spotted the fact that they're they're, they're depicting the uh, professional prostitution as almost problem free. There's a point later in the film where they reveal why n- no one knows where Susie lives. You know, she leaves for home, and uh, no one knows uh, what home is for her. And that reveal happens later in the movie, and it's a bit too squeaky clean for the fact for the more rural, more natural, naturalistic side that they bring into the movie as they depict their home life, for that to click. The movie seems to have decided that, you know, we're going to keep it squeaky clean and not gritty. And it's not going to be tragic. And I think they kept the perils of prostitution probably away from the screen in a conscious manner but but it did sort of work me that it it it's almost um it's almost glamorizing the fact that it feel surely no problem so you can dance all night long handsome sailors and that's fine and the, when they bring in that drama of nancy quas i didn't feel that was natural and necessarily affecting where we go like oh my that makes sense why she is like that and why she has to go into this line of work at all uh, and and I, I don't uh, i don't blame her for that because that's the writing of some of the emotional beats you know she, she's a new actor so some of the emotional beats feel a bit rough but uh, she she does well enough in uh, during other emotional beats where you can definitely see a very comfortable actress and uh, one that's new but gonna go places because she's already got chops and here she's a uh, false victim to a little bit of uh, you know insensitivity as you talked about but also some um, some writing that didn't uh, gel with me the contrasts of work versus home life and the motivation for going into the work and uh, you know if i'm being honest paul i mean it it what i like about the movie is that it isn't that demanding so the romance isn't you know hitting you you know, like a gut punch in the heart necessarily. Uh, but that's sort of okay. It's, it feels classical in structure. So ha- seeing the actors get on 
is good enough for the romance at hand. But uh, I wouldn't say when it goes into drama and a little bit of melodrama and when they don't get on for a little while in the film as these things go, that that uh, felt uh, emotionally engaging. But um, it, that in itself is not necessarily negative. Uh, but, but yeah, the, uh, the contrast of professional life and uh, the big reveal that happens in, later in the movie that uh, didn't quite uh, gel with me. Yeah. And I, I guess we won't spoil it, but that big reveal too, I have a problem with because by the end, they've done something to sort of completely remove that as an issue and sort of wrap it up. And I guess it works for the era. And I just keep thinking to myself that, it, you know, it's perhaps that was a, you know, where it could have gone would have been too modern for a modern fa family style family mm -hmm. um, kind of ending. And instead they just kind of, conveniently clear that away and then you know it's off to and they lived happily ever ever after maybe kind of mm -hmm. you know yeah. style ending so you know th that aspect still kind of irks me a little bit um today and i don't know if that's a part of the book um, i haven't read the book but i tried to do some digging into the narrative of the book and i didn't see any mention of that as one of the story plots so i think that might have been something that was put in for the movie um, but I could be wrong. So, uh, but I do think that yeah, it's it feels very movie esque, and you know, by putting that in there, and I guess in the context of a two hour movie, it does sort of add that sort of uh, third act shoe drop kind of idea um, mm -hmm. to to have a reveal. But uh, you know, I think that, that it doesn't necessarily work for me. But the, it, it's impressive uh, production wise, though, especially the and the set piece uh, that takes place in extreme weather, I thought was very impressive because uh, that's not location shooting. Uh, that's uh, stuff that they control on set. And they and have that... quite a considerable large amount of Asian extras um, mm -hmm. for that sequence running sort of back and forth. And it just, even my wife who, you know, came through and when I was doing the rewatch and sat down and was just watching sort of that ending part with me, she's like, wow, that's impressive for... <laughs> a movie back then they must have spent a lot of money and i was like yeah i mean if when you see some of the the breakaway things that happen um in that sequence that's a pretty big studio set and it's well controlled and um you know there's a lot of good stage management going on uh, in yep. that scene to because it is a lot of chaos but it's you know it's happening all there within the frame so it looks good and, and presumably all done in England, uh, too. Uh, Hong Kong was only exterior, if I yeah. understood things. So, And presumably, being a U.S. production or a U.S. English production, they didn't just show up and guerrilla film made that. So presumably, that's extras in need of being controlled and directed by by uh, the first assistant and all of that. And uh, it looks uh, very natural, almost like it is Hong Kong guerrilla style. Just shoot Andy Lau uh, in within a crowd and uh we're done <laughs> you know and uh, but uh, here it looks uh, natural despite uh, probably being very controlled so uh, i was very impressed by that and that uh, particular footage whether the main crew uh, did it or not indeed um before i throw it back over to ken for his final thoughts um again i will say i still enjoy this film today even though it does give me some pangs of guilt <laughs> After every time I watch it, for in, for for my level of enjoyment, but I would say that um, you keep if, slapping yourself yes. after the viewing, like I'm a bad boy, I'm a bad boy. 
<laughs> if you enjoyed Nancy Kwan in this and you are not averse to musicals, I would strongly, strongly, strongly recommend watching Flower Drum Song, which she did a year later in 1961. It is a must-see for all the talk of late of, you know, the film Crazy Rich Asians as, the you know, the first Hollywood film in a long time to feature an all-Asian cast. And, of course, there have been films that have filled this void over the years. Again, we think, think of Wayne Wang's Joy Luck Club and, um, you know, things like Saving Face and others that have been done more on the independent circuit. Um, but Flower Drum Song, I think, still sets the bar and holds it because how often do you find an all-Asian cast movie that is also a musical? You just don't. don't. And so uh, if you're not averse to musicals and you liked Lancey Kwan enough in this, you definitely got to check her out in that. And it's readily available and even cheaper in terms of uh, getting your hands on it than uh, this film. So, Ken, back over to you for your final thoughts on <laughs> Suzy Wong. I don't think I have much to add. Uh, other than like, if you can separate the elements that are bothersome, you're going to find, um, I mean, I, I didn't spot all of them, admittedly. It's me being educated by Paul here. and uh, But regardless, you'll find a, quite an easygoing movie here. And if you enjoy actors and actors uh, sharing chemistry that's uh, worthwhile and then then it then it is a breezy easy watching and enjoyable watching and it's arguably like a star making performance here by nancy kwan for all the writings uh, pros and cons and that survives to this day i mean i went in totally blank blank and uh, with zero i mean i know who william holden is but other than that it was uh, very infectious uh, for large stretches um, of the movie. So it comes recommended. But uh, do know that um, some elements uh, I, I think were being questioned already back then and certainly are now. And uh, I don't find anything, an argument against that or anything. But uh, quite enjoyable. And uh, give it a whirl, and I'm sure uh, you can easily find it uh, via the click of a few buttons in today's modern era. All right. Well, before we talk about availability, um, I do want to jump back to Hong Kong and talk a little bit about uh, this genre, which we sometimes call the uh, working girl genre or the PR girl genre or the girls without tomorrow genre or uh, any number of genre of films that have come out to really sort of talk about the issues of girls who go into um, sort of sex work and the working girl life. And again, there's been countless films made over the years on this some are better than others but the one i think we want to spend a little bit of time talking about is um, the one that was seen as kind of a direct response to this and that is the 1985 film my name ain't Susie. so uh ken you've seen this a couple times you actually reviewed it on your so good reviews site before and you have rewatched it for this episode so um what would you say your thoughts are on this, especially as a point now of contrast? Because when you originally reviewed it, you had not yet seen uh, Susie Wong. Now, having seen the world of Susie Wong, how do you see My Name Ain't Susie as a point of contrast or a response from director Angela Chan? I think it's interesting. It's it's spotty, but it has some good stretches. Uh, if I just simplify it first, it is interesting because one, of course, wonders if Susie Wong and its controversy lingered for long uh, with Hong Kong people, and uh, uh, Angela became aware 
of it and felt strongly about that this needed a response and a contrast. And that that's very, very interesting going into the movie. And obviously the title is a statement in itself. My name ain't Susie. You know, <laughs> I'm going to show you show you one or two things about uh, what uh, the world of Susie Wong uh, actually uh, could have looked like or should have looked like. So it, it follows some similar beats in terms of how the profession is depicted uh, because there there is dancing and you meet sailors and all of that but that work life versus uh, Patricia Haas or Pat Haas actual origins uh, being a presumably an immigrant or just living on a boat that mix of the of the glamour and the more nitty gritty works better. She isn't going melodramatic and over the top though, Angela's director, but it's more down to earth and uh, feels a little bit more like the, the profession is more rife with peril. And it's also, you know, you know, it's a short movie, so it doesn't spend a lot of times on a lot of time on, certain sections of the movie because this is going to cover like 20 years or something like that so it does so in 96 minutes but it is a basic story but with a more rural contrast uh, where we where we see patago from innocent naive girl she's raped even though there's no rape scene they cut away from that quickly she adjusts well to glamour and angela she doesn't shy away from some harsher elements as i said there's a scene uh, you know involving abortion not at a clinic and uh, Pata as an actress, you know, she always had the ability to involve and immerse herself in roles, uh, whether erotic roles. She did that movie the year before at Shaw Brothers. This is a Shaw Brothers movie, too. But the year before she did that movie, Amorous Woman of Tang Dynasty. She was very fetching in that. But also as the hit hit woman in On the Run, she was very good in Princess D years later. So to have her as an anchor works, even though it's the development is quite quick. So th- that's okay. And also her interaction with Anthony Wong, then Anthony Perry, uh, which is uh, nice. It's, uh, you know, it's nice to see him and see his young intensity. But, but I think uh, their, uh, their relationship is a bit undercooked. Uh, it goes uh, quick. They, they, they get on, but it seems like more because uh, he's a customer, but then there is actually a romantic feelings that lingers as they reunite later in the movie as, as maybe 10 years have passed. So the, the the spotty romantic developments, but I do enjoy that uh, that she takes charge as a character. She herself becomes um, someone who opens brothels and goes through cycle upon cycle of uh, opening new ones, uh, uh, seeing eras come and go, and uh, times changing and uh, new perils entering her life. And uh, that's a that's more compelling. The second half is more compelling because of that, because Angela depicts those uh, eras and uh, and you become a bit more attached to Pata's character because she almost have to deselect love. If she's going to be uh, essentially the head of a brothel, then love is not uh, on the cards, so to say. But not overly melodramatic as a movie. I, I, I found myself enjoying it more in the second half. I think Angela found a a, uh, a flow there. And... Uh, she, she's not rabid about like I'm gonna show her. I'm gonna show the world of Susie Wong something here, but it's definitely more, uh, you know, honest. Probably more honest and uh, uh, gives a little bit more of a realistic view of uh, what this profession might uh, 
might hold. So it, it, it wins you over fairly well by the second half, but it is uh, spotty as a movie, I think. Yeah, I think I'd agree. I do like the way that it does, again, cover multiple eras and shows some ways in which the profession changes over time and yep. some of the ways in which the main character or Pat Ha's character has to adapt herself to those changes and sometimes things work out and a lot of times uh, they don't. And again, it's not always sort of bright, sunny, and happy-go-lucky. As you mentioned, there are other issues that um, the girls have to deal with uh, that are a bit on the darker side of things. Um, the thing that struck me about it when I watched it was that with, you know, because we, what we know now about Anthony Wong and his sort of background and his home life and, um, you know, his own search for his father, it felt like almost in, in some ways a small bit of a biographical uh, adaptation mm -hmm. of, you know, of the character that he's portraying, and, you know, really kind of drawing from his own life experience, you know, having a, um, you know, a father, a mixed father who wasn't there and trying to get in touch with him. And, and if you followed along in recent years of things that have happened, you know that he is finally, uh, thanks to BBC <laughs> or CNN or somebody, uh, been reunited with his family, you know, the, the family side of him that's um, from the UK. So it's worked out in the end, but I just remember watching him going, wow, I mean, it's it's like... Did they write this role specifically for him based on his experience, or was just just a massive coincidence? Yeah, um, yeah, you, yeah. You wonder if it was based on uh, him and Angela chatting, yeah, you know, yeah. oh, and then uh, that that going. I, I don't think she wrote wrote the script, but obviously it, it could have happened that way, uh, regardless. Yeah. Um, and you, again, we talk about this kind of film as a genre, and you have a lot of the same elements here that appear in films in later eras. For example, the Girls Without Tomorrow series. Um, then you have, I think, as we approach approach the 2000s, we get into films like PR Girls, and then we get into the new millennium with like uh, Kenneth B's Girls with a dollar sign as the S. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of come back to a lot of these same themes. Times have changed, technology may have changed, but issues still remain the same. There's typically you know, in this case, it was Betty Ting, who I think plays the sort of elder matron who's kind of at the top of her game, but she sees, you know, these young, younger girls coming up and kind of stealing her spotlight. And then you have, you know, the young sort of novice girl who's unwillingly kind of thrust into this. You've got girls who tend to be a little bit more experienced and um, then also dealing with issues of abuse and triads and getting pregnant and you know so yet paul remember this though uh, the pattern for the girls without tomorrow film or films was a gut-punching melodrama like you read about <laughs> and this doesn't really go down yeah. those horrific paths yes there's a abortion as i said but it, it was almost like uh, that, that was structure 101 for these movies uh, after girls without tomorrow just punch you yeah. uh big time uh so it was refreshing to see that uh, some, someone hadn't thought of the fact that hey we can we can affect audiences by being evil <laughs> totally evil <laughs> uh so yeah yeah and i mean i'm i there are probably uh, a good handful of these that extend that I have not seen, but perhaps you're familiar with that extend into to the category three genre as well, right? Yeah, a little bit. But uh, uh, then again, you have movies like Call Girl 92, which is a very competent 
sing sound drama that, that that wasn't cheap as such it had, had some good writing veronica yip is in it and uh, so so it, uh, it 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 wasn't calculated as such um, mm. so so sometimes they tried yeah yeah um but there's you know there's there's lots of these the, that are out there from different eras but i would say if you've seen um suzy wong before you go on to any of the others do check out my name ain't suzy um again kind of as as a response to this and and again coming from um a female director who's i think when we think about ideas again about the you know placing women in the spotlight of sexuality and male gaze and subjectization and fragmentation you know when contrast with male counterparts on the screen all of that stuff we can kind of check that at the door and try to look at it through a different lens this time because we have um, her as the director for this film. Mm-hmm. And from there, then you can go back into some of the more later iterations that we've mentioned. It seems like she, be- like she became more of a documentary filmmaker as uh, she expanded her career, Angela. Uh, the last two credits I, re- I were were cited as uh, documentary as genre on Hong Kong Movie Database. So um, she, she she did one or two more narrative-based movies, but then uh, documentaries. Yeah, I think, I mean, the only one I'm really familiar with is Chaos by Design that she did with... Um, Cecilia Yip was uh, in that, I yeah, think. Yeah, and Cherry Chung. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of her stuff is just very limited in terms of, it, of availability. So um, it's, you know, it's not all of it. I mean, My Name Ain't Susie, I think, the availability for that, if you can find the IVL version... Um, is probably your best bet um, online. I think I got a Taiwan version of that, which is perfectly fine. Um, and I think Chaos by Design had release in the Legendary Collection. Um, yep. And but the, the, some of the other stuff that's in her filmography, I think, is uh, is just not that easy to come by, unfortunately. Um, which is a shame. And I do believe uh, my fantabulous co-star. Uh, the one and only Mr. Kevin Ma. Um, TV's Kevin Ma. TV's Kevin Ma. Yeah, uh, oh. he's 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 actually a student of uh, uh, Miss Chan. She was one of his film teachers when he was studying his film degree. Right on. Um, if my memory so serves. So yeah. she does she does work in on the academic side too when she's not uh, when she's not making movies. So. All right. Uh, shall we talk a little bit about the availability for Suzy Wong? So it's readily available if you don't mind streaming services. So your iTunes, your Amazons, um, keep the quote-unquote HD version uh, with a list price of twelve ninety nine. Currently, there is a US DVD that was released, um, and that runs the realm of anywhere from 22 to $75 Whoa. between new and used versions of that. Um, there is a Blu-ray version uh, from Spain, a Spanish Blu-ray that lists for $35. Now, whether that's a true HD version, it's hard to say. Um, I have the DVD version, and I believe that's the version I passed over to you, Ken. But the um, I also have the iTunes HD version, which doesn't look that great for an HD version. Um, so mm. I think it's just a case of some minor upscaling from the DVD version. Shame and, because clearly it's a it's a paramount title so it's not like well we 
can't find a negative we can't do anything about it so that's just um, that's just lazy really. yeah and and i think it you know it does deserve um it does deserve a a, a nice well done remastered uh, upgrade again i don't know if the spanish blu-ray offers that or not it might but with the 35 dollar price tag that is apparently an all region or at least an abc region disc that you can get a hold of so it should play on your player um but i've not wanted to shell out the money since i already have two versions of it um currently so we'll support the, the film paul <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm i'm shirking in my duty i apologize hmm. and of course with the itunes or amazon version they have cheaper rental options available as well so if you're just you've never seen it you're not sure it's for you or something you'd want to keep long term in your library you have a cheaper option to just rent it and give it a watch You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to Hollywood on Hong Kong, a sub-series of the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snow's Radio Orchestra. Researchers come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you, so if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us at Facebook on East S West S. Um, as always, though, please do follow along with my co-host, in everything that he does. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Well, in terms of podcasting, we're all, we have it all, all our shows over at podcastonfire.com. Plenty of them to choose from. Have a little uh, menu there on the right-hand side. And uh, that includes also uh, links to our social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and uh, all of that good stuff. So if you uh, if you didn't get turned off by the way I Homer Simpson my way through this review, then uh, then do check out our uh, our shows and our chats on Hong Kong cinema and uh, what have you. So uh, thank you if you have listened and thank you if you do give us a chance. All right, excellent. Please do check out all of the great stuff that they do over there. That is the podcast on Fire Network and so good reviews. For our next show, we are going to be bringing this sub-series to a close and our season to an end with our final film for this year, Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong. The I, I mean, technically, it is listed as a U.S. slash Hong Kong production, so in some ways we're kind of moving a little bit back away from Hollywood to Hong Kong, but it's a little bit more on the sort of indie side of things. But I do think it'll be a good way to sort of wrap up the subseries and close out the season. This will be, I think, a first watch for Ken and a second yes. watch for me. So we'll be talking about that, and we'll also be sort of closing out with some, I think, some you know recommendations for things relevant to um, what we've talked about in the sub-series um, that are back in Hong Kong cinema, right? So um, we've, we've touched on a few things, like for today, for example, today's we talked about uh, My Name Ain't Susie as kind of a Hong Kong recommendation that's in line with <clears throat> the world of Susie Wong. So I'll have a, a short listing, and, and we'll see if Ken has some other ideas, too, on some Hong Kong-specific stuff that's relevant to sort of the themes of the sub-series that we've covered 
um, for this first season. Well, Charlie Cho is in my name in Susu, so I have Charlie Cho recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the you way have, I was thinking. You have <laughs> thinking can. Quite a few Charlie Cho recommendations, indeed. Yes, All of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the Screen West Screen podcast subseries Hollywood on Hong Kong saying, oh, for goodness sake, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> see what I did there. Thank you, folks. Uh,